All right, good evening. Uh, welcome to the LSE for this evening's event, which is co-hosted with the Royal Society of Literature. This event forms part of the Shape the World series, which is held in the run-up to the LSE Festival, a week-long series of events taking place from March 2nd to the 7th, free to attend and open to all, uh, exploring how social science can make the world a better place. And there are some festival leaflets around and some tote bags, so um, make sure you grab one of those if you haven't already. My name is Rebecca Elliott. I'm an assistant professor uh, in the sociology department here at the LSE. And I'm very pleased to be here to welcome Chloe Arigis, A.L. Kennedy, Daljeet Nagra, and Dr. Ganga Sridhar to the LSE today. Um, I'll say a little bit by way of introducing them, and then the idea is just for us to kind of have a, a conversation um, about a set of questions that I'll share with you in a, in a little while. Um, but ultimately, the plan is to turn the floor to you and give you an opportunity to ask questions of any and all of our panelists. Um, so please do uh, be thinking of those. Uh, there will be stewards going around with microphones um, when we get to that point of the evening. So I'll start with Chloe. Uh, Chloe Regis is a London-based Mexican novelist and writer. Her 2009 novel, Book of Clouds, was published in eight countries and won the French Prix du Premier Roman Étranger. A.L. Kennedy has written nine novels, six short story collections, three books of nonfiction, and three books for children, including the man booker long-listed Serious Sweet. Daljeet Nagra is a poet whose awards include the Forward Prize, the Glenn Dimplex New Writers Award for Poetry, and Jerwood Adelber First Collection Award. And Dr. Ganga Sridhar is an assistant professor at LSE's Department of Psychological and Behavioral Science whose research looks at how individual and contextual factors motivate environmentally relevant choices across different types of consumer and citizen domains. So what questions are on the agenda tonight for this esteemed panel? On October 11th, 2019, a group of writers congregated in Trafalgar Square to protest against climate change as part of Extinction Rebellion's October uprising. Some of you may have been there. In a four-hour marathon of readings from novelists, poets, screenwriters, and academics, writers insisted on the responsibility of artists to address our climate crisis. But can their protests make a difference? How do writers regard their role in leading social change? And does literature have to be about climate change to alter political and social action to save the planet? So for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Festival. I would ask you, though, to please put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the event. The, the event this evening is being recorded um, and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. Um, and I also wanted to note that there will be a book signing after the event, and copies of their respective books will be on sale just outside of the theater. All right, so to begin... I thought perhaps, you know, I, I gave a very kind of cursory introduction of your uh, accomplishments, um, but I thought I'd give each of you a few minutes to provide your own introduction by way of how you, your journey got you to this evening. So tell us a little bit about your you know, personal, professional, um, 
uh, writerly kind of commitments to climate change, where they came from and what's brought you here. And perhaps we'll start with Chloe. I never know what distance may be like this. <laughs> Um, so I grew up, uh, well, in Holland and then in Mexico, and my father is a Mexican poet um, who grew up in a small Mexican village in Michoacán where uh, the monarch butterflies winter every year. Uh, they fly down from Canada. Um, and in uh, one very polluted day in 1985 when the pollution in Mexico City was uh, so monstrous that birds were dropping dead out of the sky, he rang up a philosopher friend of his named Ramon Chirao, and they drew up a declaration that was then, and they collected 100 signatures from different writers and artists and published it, and calling upon the government to release air pollution levels and reduce the lead and gasoline and take other measures. And uh, very quickly, um, it was called the Group of 100, and it became uh, a very active and important uh, environmental group comprised of artists and uh, writers. So I grew up in an activist household seeing how um, the, the, seeing very large campaigns run out of a tiny room. My mother was an international coordinator and they had a fax machine um, and um, apart from addressing the air pollution, three of their very important um, and successful campaigns were protecting migratory species. One was uh, the gray whale, because there was a very large salt works that um, Mitsubishi and the Mexican government were going to build in Baja California, where the gray whale goes to breed every January, the lagoon. Then um, they also established uh, sanctuaries for the monarch butterfly because of the logging, which there's still a lot of illegal logging, unfortunately, and then closing down all the sea turtle slaughterhouses along the Pacific coast. But anyway, so we are growing up and and feeling very inspired and just seeing how a group of, of people who usually spend most of the day alone or in their studios. Um, and so, but as an adult, I was just feeling more and more despair about what's happening in the world and not feeling it was enough to just be signing petitions or joining, joining protests, um, send, sending you know, very modest amounts of money to my, my favorite animal camp, um, charities. And so... Um, I was very happy when uh, Rock Sanford and then Liz Jensen and, and Monique and Jessica and the Writers Rebel approached me and said, you know, would I form part of this core group? And I finally thought, here's a small way of actually becoming a bit more active. And, um, and even though you know, many of us aren't really wired for teamwork, but it's actually been extremely cathartic and for once feeling very energized. <laughs> Yeah, um, very long journey. Uh, no, you know that was a lovely journey. Mine doesn't make as much sense. Um, I suppose I grew I grew up in Scotland, um, in a small town which abutted on countryside and was penetrated by countryside. Uh, so I was very familiar with and appreciative of the sort of benevolent effects of living things, of landscapes, of light on water, of looking at red squirrels. Um, and it's interesting now to look at, although it's not particularly reported, one of the major differences between the Westminster government and the government of Scotland is the attitude to global warming, the attitude to use of renewables, 
targets. Um, you have a country that's not embracing uh, pretend learned helplessness in the face of something that you have to do something about. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, you know, Glasgow and Edinburgh are racing each other to become carbon neutral, uh, you know, which may be more or less fake and maybe more or less about offsetting. Um, but I, you know, I was aware that things were changing. Um, but not necessarily aware of why. And then I collaborated 25 or so years ago with John Burnside, uh, the poet, who at that point just said, I'm, whatever I write, it's always going to be about the environment. I'm not ever going to write not about the environment. And at the time I thought, that's a bit much, isn't it? Mm. Um, but, you know, uh, I say, you know, I started offsetting because I was flying a lot and I never felt comfortable about flying. And I, and I don't fly. But that involves being on boats, which is equally dreadful in a different direction. Um, but, I, you know, I started planting trees to offset myself. Um, but, you know, the more information you get, I don't have children... But I don't hate them. <laughs> I don't want them to live in hell. I don't. I don't. Books for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, laterally, uh, I started five, six years ago, specifically writing books for children, which are not always about the environment, but which are about. Here's the thing you'll need. Here's another thing you'll need. <laughs> Please be happy now, as uh, so you can remember it when you're living in hell in a vast refugee camp with no water. Um, sorry. Um, so, you know, just trying to think of uh, things to do. But you know, as, as, as a writer, we do change things. Uh, we easily accept that, you, that endless negative nudges will change people for the worst. Obviously, the UK is being endlessly nudged towards uh, neo-fascism. I just found yeah, it just Nazism. I, it's not new. It's not interesting. It's Nazism with a top dressing of some old KGB shit. I mean, there is nothing new about this. It's not 15-dimensional chess, but it's 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 effective. Um, the people involved in that are not good at lying. They're not good liars. Uh, I'm really good at lying. I've been lying for decades. I'm shit hot at lying. Everybody here is shit hot at lying in a way that's not about being sociopathic. If you've ever tried to create character, you're saying something about the nature of humanity. So we're kind of in the opposite game. Um, but I, you know, I, I feel personally uh, complicit, obviously, because we all kind of are. Um, but again, decades ago, I attended a conference with human rights lawyers. I was the only writer there. And it was very clear that when arts fails, the, the next thing that comes under pressure is law and human rights law. And when that gives, you have no human rights. But art reminds you why you would want human rights for everybody. So we screwed up in the 1980s. <sighs> and drop the ball. And now the lawyers have been crushed. Um, and things are going to get very dark. And it was kind of a chilling conference. 
because it became so clear that we would end up here and that here would quickly become somewhere less pleasant and that it's such a grotesque distraction from all of the stuff that we need to be doing and all of the money that we need to be spending. Um, so, you know, that's, that's why I ended up in Trafalgar Square, and it was the best literary event. And I think every writer who was there said it was the best literary event <coughs> that we'd ever been at, because it was not about who was showing up or yeah, even who was what really we say, more. eco, not ego. Yeah, it was just, yeah. this is beautiful, this is whatever we think would uplift the spirit, because, you know, these people are frontline people who have to be able to keep constructively happy, because... If you despair, it's perfectly reasonable, but it means they've already won. So we have no time for that. So let's do this. And to have to, you know, Toby Lit reading, um, Wisdom is sold in the desolate market where none come to buy, and all these millennials, the most despised people on earth who are actually trying to save all life on earth, thank you millennials, all we do is talk badly to you. <laughs> You know, reciting back, wisdom is sold in the desolate. They're not supposed to be able to understand anything. They're all supposed to be sitting at home on their phones, sexting or something. <laughs> That's really passe. That's like 15 years out of date. Nobody say, even I don't sext anymore. Um, you know, but the most despised people in society, apart from disabled people, <laughs> the most disposable people that we're all supposed to loathe, um, responding to classic high art that you're not supposed to be interested in unless you went to Eton, um, where, of course, you probably didn't have to learn to read because somebody else would do it for you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's important that there should be life on Earth, probably. <laughs> and we have regenerated from a dozen or so, but if we have to do that, we'll forget why we had to do that. It will take so long to redevelop society that that will be tough for us. Uh. Um, just to pick up from that, I think, um, <laughs> having um, taken part in the Extinction Rebellion event, which has led me to a project I'm involved in at the moment, uh, I enjoyed the Extinction Rebellion taking part, but I, I remember walking into Trafalgar Square and just seeing, you know, it's kind of multicultural city, central London, there's just like white middle-class people everywhere, mm. and these kind of middle-class accents. I was really surprised at that, and I was one of a few non-white people reading that day. Uh, and then since then, I've been working uh, on a project at Brunel University, where I teach with, uh, with another academic, uh, really think about how to engage BAME mm -hmm. community, the multi-ethnic you know, community, who are long-term going to be impacted upon first of all, mm -hmm. before anybody else, and yet they weren't, yeah. they weren't there speaking, and they are being impacted on. So well, the project we're kind of working on at the moment, me and some of the academic, um, we're getting kind of in the process of getting funding for it, is really to, to think about all that scientific information out there that, that, you know, proves climate crisis and how we disseminate that to local communities. And one of the big issues we came across recently about the Thames flood barrier and how in 30 years' time it's going to be useless. And Brunel was based in Hillingdon, um, the borough of Hillingdon, that's all going to be flooded. Um, and then it, we're sort of working, we're going to try and work with scientists and writers, take that message to the community, using that as an example, take it to the community. I want to go to the sort of mosques, the, the Mandirs, the Godwaras in the area, um, and to the kind of you know, minority groups, uh, not just schools, but amongst adults. So there's a project we're working on. And actually 
trying to get them to think about their own communities, stories from their own communities about disasters and crisis, think about myths and legends and superheroes, that, that kind of stuff, to, to get them writing in turn. So, for, I mean, I'd be working with scientists, but I'm going to get people to write in turn and to empower them with information and empower, try and find ways to empower them with different types of information about climate crisis. Firstly, it's relevant to them, that's on their doorstep. So Hillingdon Borough is very multicultural, it's got kind of just that community going, um, and it felt a really good thing to do. So we're, we're going to take that out there as, as writers and scientists. Um, I'm sure it's a project that's going to work um, as a way of empowering um, people from my background, for example. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, I'm going to turn to, to Ganga in just a moment, but I wanted to um, ask you all to reflect... Um, a little bit more on why you think it's important that writers in particular are engaged, are mobilized, um, both you know, in terms of kind of what writers perhaps represent to the rest of society, but also you know, what, what is the role of storytelling in approaching an environmental crisis? Anyone, persuasion. Oh, no. Anyone can jump in. Persuasion, for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the simple kind of power of persuasion. We, we were talking about politicians earlier and the dog whistling and the duplicity, that kind of stuff that goes on. Uh, storytelling is the first art of you know, natural, healthy persuasion uh, to the complexities, the, the kind of inner tensions and dynamics that a problem um, has, you know, to really look inside the, the range of complexity. So I'm always really excited by storytelling for, for its ability not to simplify things and show you the richness and complexity, or in this case, the apocalyptic mm-hmm. possibilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, without hammering home a message. Because right, we sort of build hope into our stories, I think, as well. We, find, we look for solutions within that. Mm. It's not any, anything political. I mean, al- almost everything is a battle of narratives. Um, and we produce narratives. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's axiomatic now that if you read fiction, then you're engaging in empathy. We kind of, we are empathy manufacturers, um, if you don't give a damn about anyone you haven't met yet, <laughs> then, you know, our current situation is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's our job to make you care about people that you haven't met yet mm-hmm. and to somehow make that effective and to practice imagination. I mean, there's, there's been a real degrading of imaginative culture and you have all of these constructed realities which aren't reality at all, but it's cheap and you don't have to pay actors and you don't have to write a script and it's just not really anything, but it fills hours on television. Um, or movies where lots of things blow up. Um, you don't need don't, subtitles and you can sell them everywhere. But there's a, there's a lot of art that doesn't increase your interest in, in humanity. And if somebody came up and said you know, the Chagos Islanders, which can't go home anyway because we've stolen their home, but, you know, it won't matter anyway because it'll be underwater or, you know, a fifth of, of our agricultural land will be, will be un, underwater in, in our children's and grandchildren's time. Um, if you haven't been encouraged to imagine things at all, um, you know, political change becomes <coughs> difficult. So we're always going for empathy for imagination, and I think almost, I mean, those rules that came out this week about talking about suicide, the, 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 these guidelines um, 
with the Samaritans. If you, if you're going to write fiction, we're not going to tie your hands, but maybe think. Don't make the person uh, killing themselves a romantic, uh, glorious hero because you get this uh, verter effect and you get a spike in suicides. Try not to write things that make lots of people kill themselves. Try and do the opposite. Try and do the Papageno effect. Try and do something that you know, that doesn't alienate them by saying, "I have triumphed over my mm-hmm. whatever." But I mean, effectively, we're talking about suicide. Um, our species is committing suicide on its own behalf and on behalf of every other species. So, how do we use the guidelines to say we can't make people despair? We can't describe this in such a way that you get like more than 20% of the facts because you do just want to go and throw up forever and then jump off a cliff because it'll be better. That's not helpful. Um, How do you talk about this in a way that is inspiring and creative and gives us any chance in the handful of years that we've got left to maybe only have 50% hell? You know, even if we got that much, speaking as a Scot, we won't be underwater. Hmm. We're quite hilly. <laughs> you know, just go up a mountain. But you know, um, how do how do we approach talking about this in a in a, in a way that's psych- psychologically useful right. and inspiring? So you can just keep on because it's going to be a fight against every possible enormous power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, just to add that, um, I think there has been an, an, a very important shift over the past few years within, especially the realm of fiction, which is that. Uh, since Amitav Ghosh's The Great Derangement came out in 2016, which is about you know, the cultural silence, the, the, the deafening silence around climate change, um, I think there has been a very important shift um, in novels that address the crisis, um, and they're no longer science fiction or cli-fi, but actually they're, more within a psycholo- they're brought into a psychological realm, and it's unfolding in the present, in present time, and... Um, you can identify much more with the characters than some very hellish glimpse into the future. Mm-hmm. Sure. But again, growing up in Mexico City, it's such a megalopolis, and with soul-destroying traffic and air pollution, that, that was already a frightening glimpse into the future. Nothing like but what faces us now. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I think that has been a very important literary shift, especially within the novel. Mm-hmm. I guess I, I want to talk more about Amitav Ghosh. Um, but before we do, um, I wanted to turn to Ganga, because your research is on environmentally conscious choices and behavior change, and I'd just be curious for you to kind of share a little bit about your research and then perhaps some intersections that you see with some of the things that have come up. Yeah, so, um, I mean, initially when um, I was asked to to do this, one of the reasons I said yes was because I was curious to actually hear from writers um, and hear the voice and what challenges you guys are facing. So uh, when addressing one of those questions, which was, um, is it, does it make a difference? The way I sort of understood that was, okay, do the narratives you tell cause a change in behavior? And um, from a psychological perspective, although we don't have a very good grip on what motivates the change from individual to social, that's a limitation, Mm -hmm. um, one of the things we we do have some data on is what motivates individual behavior change. So um, I thought very broadly, if we look at narratives as basically just stories about how things come to be, they suggest some sort of a causal explanation. They reflect a certain worldview or point of view. Um, and they can also be sometimes seen as social scripts or social norms. 
um, that's broadly defined, and they can be anything from novels to poetry to, to a meme or to a share or like on Facebook or even videos, right? Because uh, all of them do tell stories. So in asking the question, does narrative, do narratives change behavior and collective action behaviors? Um, there was an interesting study done in Rwanda where um, a decade after the genocide, certain communities were exposed to a, a radio program called New Dawn. It was a reconciliation-based program modeled on Romeo and Juliet, but with a better ending, uh, where they had humor, intrigue, and all of the stuff. And then in, in a set of other villages, which were quite similar, um, they just had a similarly arranged program, but just talking about health. Um, they collected data, both quantitative as well as qualitative data, things like focus groups, surveys, role plays, um, unobtrusive ways of measuring behavior. And at the end of that year, they sort of compared what happened in both the villages, ones which heard these stories about reconciliation and ones which didn't. They found that although they didn't find a big change in attitudes, they did find a change in behavior in respect um, to basically the ability to actually voice dissent with their peers as well as try to solve problems locally without relying on officials. Um, and they also felt this sense of experienced collective responsibility for local issues, which was interesting because that's one, a good example. It's quite hard to get this causal effect of narratives on behavior. This is a good example of one where they have. And emerging evidence from sort of um, other fields show that narratives and stories, largely from mass media, so things like television, news programs, radio shows, um, movies can change behavior in things like fertility choices and contraceptive use to um, which might be useful for climate change <laughs> um, to um, basically the, the willingness to buy carbon offsets in local areas to um, even if that's problematic from a climate change perspective at points um, but also things like educational outcomes and test scores. So then the question becomes why do particular narratives change behavior um, or how do they, and why do they go viral? Like, when do they become socially successful? So we did a bit of an experiment in the lab here at LSE, largely with a student body, uh, where we exposed people to videos um, about wildlife donations, so it was appeals, and some of those stories contained information about the human cause of endangerment. In this case, it was illegal uh, wildlife hunting and poaching. And we found that those um, people who saw those stories, which allowed them to sort of have a character-driven, emotionally complex storytelling experience, they were not just um, more likely to donate more. They also stated experiencing more interest and, in interestingly, anger, which is a negative emotion. But one that has been linked to, in various cases, the need to do righteous, um, restorative actions. Um, and similarly, other, store, other neuroscience evidence has also shown that um, strong character-driven stories can help not just invoke empathy, but also motivate uh, the willingness to help other people. So one thing is that these strong character-driven stories end up actually potentially bridging psychological distance. So if you don't have a direct experience of the issue, um, you're not going to meet a polar bear or you know, any of the animals which are going extinct. So if you don't have that direct experience, if you think that the effects are quite temporarily distant, 2050 does seem, although it's, it's very salient in terms of Brunel will disappear under the floods. But it's sort of in the future. So in those cases, I think stories have a special role to, and which is very much the case in climate change and mass extinction, stories can be especially 
effective at making these intangible um, effects quite tangible and memorable. So in terms of what really goes viral, if you look at that, there's been some data analyzed from social media feeds, what's, get, what's getting shared on Reddit and New York Times. What ends up being psychologically, I mean, what they say is psychologically driving that is basically high arousal emotions. So things like joy or awe, surprise, and in some cases, anger. So the apocalyptic sort of storytelling, which is fear-inducing, tends to work less well. Mm. It tends to potentially disengage people, and you, that information tends to get less shared and even commented on because sadness is sort of like an inward-looking emotion. It's not high arousal. So that's kind of what we know. But one thing which is sort of complicating this whole story is increasingly we're using social media to share all of this, right? And then social media has particular structures in which stories by particular people for particular people get promoted mm -hmm. um, in ways we fully don't have any insight into because the algorithms are opaque, but also in ways where there's self-selection. So you see what you prefer to see, and those stories might be counter-narratives to what you're trying to sell in terms of the importance of climate change. They might be a bid for you to buy the next fancy pair of sneakers, or it might just be fake news, right? So in that case, I think something we don't really know very well is why particular stories sell there and who reads those stories and whose stories get told, which relates to your point about why there's fewer BAME voices mm -hmm. or what stories are they getting exposed to or where is a voice for them as well. Thanks. There's so much there to pick up on, and, and I'd invite the three of you to kind of engage with any piece of it. But, but two things that kind of jump out to me um, that I thought we might spend some time talking about are, are first this connection that you just made um, with Daljit about, you know, when we talk about climate change, the royal we is everywhere. You know, it's our climate, it's our planet, what are we going to do about it? But of course, you know, as social scientists know, um, people are very differently positioned relative to something like climate change. They are not equally vulnerable, and they're also not equally empowered to make an impact in terms of kind of mitigation, or equally empowered to adapt, um, to be made kind of resilient to climate change. Um, so I'd be curious to hear from our writers about how you think about positionality, about point of view on something that is so big as climate change, uh, about power and voice in your own work or kind of as in a, in a vision for storytelling about climate change more generally. Um, and then the other thing that I wanted to pick up on um, from Ganga's research is this, this idea about kind of catastrophism. Um, you know, does writing that engages with climate change have to devolve into catastrophism? I mean, there, there's been some conversation already about hope and inspiration and, you know, and how do you personally kind of situate yourself relative to this, the, the kind of temptation to despair, um, but also the understanding that we need, we need some form of, of, uh, of activism that requires a, a different kind of register of emotion? I think actually there's, um, there's a lot to be learned from the indigenous peoples who've been so good, you know, even if you just looked at the Dakota Access Pipeline protests, but I mean, indigenous, uh, the Wet'suwet'en people at the moment are protesting um, another petrochemical plan in Canada. Those people have, you know, I'm a white middle-class person. Three generations back, I working class white, but I mean, I have never gone through what those guys have gone through, and they're still here 
and they're still fighting for things that make sense. And they have a huge experience and reservoir of resilience, which is kind of out there. Um, so, I mean, you know, the, the, the intersectionality that would help us, I think we're, we're, we're kind of edging towards that being there, which again is why there's so much pushback and so much boosting of racism and so much boosting of splitting people apart into the smallest possible groups. But I mean, there's a lot of expertise in a lot of communities that have gone through huge amounts of awfulness and who've had their environments destroyed just because they were taken completely out of it and shipped across the Atlantic and thrown into a different hell. So, you know, there are people who have experienced generationally of hell from whom we can all learn. Um, so there's, you know, there's, there's and, that, and that isn't really getting talked about enough. It's kind of out there and it's out there on social media. But, I mean, I think we're, we're people who create stuff. So we, we can create all the time, hopefully, enough things that will get enough people to just have the one that clicked. I mean, I've, I've been interested in this for all of my adult life, really. Um, but for me, the key thing was uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, possible sex pest, maybe, maybe not, um, but a uh, great scientist and Bill Nye, the science guy, not the actor, um, just talking about the height of uh, the Statue of Liberty. And that being the kind of probable ballpark rise in sea levels. And I've seen the Statue of Liberty. It's, it's where the ship stops when you hit America. You're opposite that damn thing. That's a lot of water. That's epic. And that, I wake up in the morning thinking of the Statue of Liberty. You know, it was a great thing to pick on. And it's a great thing to say to America because it's their iconic thing about being weak and welcoming followers, you know, but um, other than that, um, you know, it's a thing that everybody knows. Uh, um, so it's kind of, in the way that people say the, the size of whales or the size of a football field, um, you're always thinking, how do, how do I frame this so that people will get it? And how do I disseminate in, in a culture where informed opinion and popular opinion are further apart than they've probably ever been. And to reach certain communities who aren't quite plugged in yet, it kind of has to be word of mouth because popular culture isn't, isn't getting there. But it's, you know, there are lots of grassroots people who get how to do this. It's, it's really kind of making connections across groups, because that works terribly well. Uh, a, a very worrying, um, well, I don't know if it's a trend, because it has gone on for some time, but there's more notice being drawn to it now, is also the murder of environmentalists and, yeah. and of indigenous people in, well, Colombia, Brazil, Mexico, Philippines, Indonesia. And so how can one protect local people who are defending their their land or their animals and it's it's a huge it's a very critical problem and i don't know mm -hmm. how if you know what one can do and those got you know if if, if you watch something like aboriginal aboriginal people's television network you know that that's an entire different world but who does you know that's the difficulty
But I mean, those, those guys really get it. I'm not much of an activist, as probably came across, but um, I'm not very good at it. But what I focus on, I guess, is as a writer and thinking of my own beloved art form, poetry, as the metaphor for other art forms, whether it be, I don't know, folk music or Woody Guthrie or whatever. Um, poetry always has written about the planet, the earth. It's written nature poetry, obviously. Um, you go back to the Greeks writing about agriculture, how to plough properly and whatever. And I think of my, um, the Ramayana, Ramayana, um, you know, I, and I, I did some research and I did a book on, on Ramayana and you look at every different version, whether it be Thai, Burmese, Philippine, the different Indian versions, and there's just a whole ecological story written around the story of the gods and the humans on Earth about how do we look after the planet. You know, we have the, we have the, the Mother India image, in, of, you know, I grew up with that from a Punjabi family, so it's there, it's there in the literature. I mean, I think it's, you know, Wordsworth, and I was reading Emily Bronte the other day, and just her immersion into this incredible nature poetry, not her novel, but the, the poetry, just this, the healing power of nature, and you know, you mentioned John Burnside, Kathleen Jamie, I think of John, um, Alice Oswald, or Paul Farley's book a few months ago, very much about birds and trees and nature. Um, so po- poetry, in its own way, is just trying to remind us how beautiful the planet is. It, it has to do this other thing, as you say, we can't work with catastrophe telling. It's just no. reminding people how beautiful things are um, and how to connect with nature. I think they're trying to tell us that, you know, we live in concrete, but there is this other possibility. And how do we find beauty through concrete, around concrete? How do we look at the sky again? How do we look at... The, or how do we smell the air again? You know, how do we mm. smell properly? So I think poetry does that, and hopefully every art form is um, doing that. And, and whilst poetry is a sort of small thought art form, it's, you know, it's taught at primary school, it's taught at GCSEA level, so hopefully we have this massive immersion through it, and hopefully that will help, that might have some impact in its own small way. And all the art forms yeah. um, offer hope, maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing here is by explicitly making something about environmental catastrophe, you fail to reach an audience who really doesn't like the issue, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So there must be some thinking around how can you communicate something without making it about the thing you want to convince people about or mm-hmm. persuade people about. So this is, a, a ter- this, is a, this is quite a much-cited example sometimes from consumer behavior, where the Tesla, for instance, is probably one of the most eco-efficient cars, Right? Um, they try to do battery technology compared to something like Porsche or anything else on the market. But they don't really sell themselves as an environmental car. They sell themselves as a good car. Mm. Right? So the idea is that attracts people who are not already part of the choir. Right? So you're allowed to preach that word and make an effect and an impact in a different way in terms of the amount of emissions avoided. So. It's a, it's a tricky question because it's a catastrophe. Mm-hmm. So, so how do you communicate and talk about something really depressing without making it about the depressing thing mm-hmm. or making it depressing? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I feel like that's where imagination comes in. Well, that's and that's yeah. where writers really have to help it's the social scientists out. Yeah. So actually one of... Um, yeah. So we, that's what, with our Writers Rebel group, what we've been uh, brainstorming and thinking of different ways of bringing you know, the power of words beyond the bookshop, bookshops and actually more into physical space, into the streets, and amplifying the message and far beyond our community. So having poets, so having, um, well, one project is, which XR has done already, paint the streets and having um, with um, uh, 
having um, stencils, posters, also poems on the underground, um, perhaps you know dis- disruptive readings in unexpected places, but somehow bringing literature uh, more into physical space and and exposing it to people who wouldn't necessarily maybe buy a book of poems. Mm-hmm. So putting our poets to work in other ways. <laughs> but I think it's just very important, just given the urgency of the situation, um, really trying to amplify the message and broadcast it. And even if it annoys people sometimes, or they walk away, but they'll think about it and go home and talk about it and complain over you know, dinner and other people, the children will hear it. And mm-hmm. So you just never know the ripple effects. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to pick up on this point about form, about poetry, you know, perhaps well, in, in versus the novel, I mean, the Amitav Ghosh came up. Um, and Amitav Ghosh wrote this book, The Great Derangement, and in that book he's trying to kind of scrutinize why modern culture, and in particular um, why the novel has rendered climate change unthinkable. Um, and, and basically the argument he makes is that the novel is so implicated in the Anthropocene, in the kinds of attitudes that have produced and practices that have produced um, our ecological crisis that it can't actually help us think our way out of it. Um, and so I'd be curious to know if in your own writing, if you found, um, well, I mean, you're welcome to respond to Amitav Ghosh, but the question is more generally about um, the role of different kinds of writing. So, you know, what is what do you think is the kind of role of the novel versus the role of poetry or kind of exposition or, you know, creative nonfiction or, you know, any of the you know, review, you know, whatever um, kinds of writing. Yeah, TikTok, memeing, Twitter, you know, whatever kind of writing you're engaged in. You need everything. But, I mean, the thing about a novel is you, you spend the longest time with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, movies, one hour, two hours, three hours, a play's not going to be three hours short stories, an afternoon, you, you might spend a week with a novel, <coughs> maybe more, you know, if it's a chunky one. It's a long immersion, potentially in somebody's point of view other than your own. Mm-hmm. Um, when you come out of it, if it's a working mechanism, you're slightly different. Mm-hmm. I mean, our job is, is to make it as working a mechanism as possible and to throw enough angles at you that if you hate hemp-smelling crusties disfiguring national monuments, you're worried about your inability to continue to hunt foxes, you know, because you wouldn't be able to do that either. And your butler might have drowned swimming towards your beagles. Um, You know, it's not good news for anybody. Um, so you, it's kind of our job to, to, to find angles and ways of talking to people um, or to, to do unadvertising. And I mean, the Adbusters people, long and weary ago, uh, were trying to do unadvertising to unsell things, to have you buy nothing on Buy Nothing Day, at least on that day. Um, and people like Led by Donkeys have kind of established how you put mainstream advertising crowdfunded out there to have almost the effect of mainstream advertising, but to not be giving a mainstream message. Um, so there's, there's, there's a lot out there technologically now. Um, it's that you really need to get organized. The difficulty is if it really does get organized, it will then get shut down because... 
as soon as we become effective, that will be a problem. Um, well, I mean, it's already kind of hinting that it will be a problem, but, you know, what can you do? Maybe do some prison experience novels about resilience. How to resist torture, um, you know. Or, or another, you know, iteration of the, uh, is it the Monkey Ranch Gang, you know. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's our job to come up with different ideas and different angles and different ways of talking to different people. And, and like, poet can sum something up in five words. That, that probably is what we need on the stencil. Mm-hmm. What's that that I can't forget? Yeah. Um, or, or, you know, when people were parading through the street with a whole load of, um, with the Red Brigade looking uncanny and a whole load of skeletons, if that even changed three people, it's three people more. It's just you keep having to do stuff. Um, you know, having a die-in in a shopping centre in, in Colchester, which is not a hotbed of revolution at all. Um, and we're all there being dead um, with kind of middle-aged people looking bemused or sniggering or, or whatever. But you know, around the corner comes some terrifically well-dressed young people. Uh, and I kind of think, you know, are they actually going to start aggro? No. Hit the deck. Hmm. Effective and well-dressed dying. Um, with a purpose. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a huge amount of energy out there and, and ingenuity. It's just whether, whether we will be in time and how stupidly self-destructive um, corporations will be and, and how devoted to killing their own children. I think children are a key point. Advertisers will say, you know, just turn on your TV and look at the adverts. You have to use that washing powder because it's the equivalent of putting your child in a bike helmet. If you don't use this washing powder, you want your child to have brain damage. I mean, that's how they sell everything. Ads about fathers giving nice things to their daughters, smiling babies, singing babies that have nothing to do with the product at all. They just slap a baby on it, you're going to buy it. People care about their offspring. I don't have offspring. I have withered ovaries. Um, I'm a single, you know, I'm a, the only child of my mother. She's barely maternal. My grandmother hardly maternal. You know, I'm the end of the I'm perfect ecologically. I'm not supposed to reproduce, and I haven't. And even I will go, oh, there's a baby on that combine harvester. Maybe I should have a combine harvester. <laughs> Look, it's got a baby on it. Um, I, th- I think kids ca- are kind of the key. It's very hard to hate them. Mm-hmm. Really hard to hate them. Um, and, you know, and they're up for the challenge. Uh, so, you, hooray. And, it, and, you know, when Piers Morgan goes toe-to-toe with a schoolgirl, <laughs> when the Prime Minister of America goes toe-to-toe with a schoolgirl, it's just, it's very hard to make that a good look. <laughs> um, and, and Greta knows it. Uh, you know, so... It's, it's great that they're there because they might save us, um, but it's great that they're there because they're a huge lever. 
You know, you go through a children's clothing aisle. That's all about such levels of care, such levels of wanting safety and comfort. And it's just leaning on, but why bother? Why have the comfy blanket? Why have the hat that makes you look like a dinosaur? Why bother? Because your house is on fire. Um, before we turn it to the audience for questions, um, I don't know if any of you wanted to read anything. Andy, I just just add my daughters. Uh, my two daughters are ten and twelve. They're constantly writing poetry at school mm-hmm. about environment. So you know, there's always these positive things, aren't there, about the environment? You know, this younger generation are kind of growing up with it. And on a kind of slightly different note. Um, I guess I was, I was reading some poems by Nisha Ramaya, uh, a young poet. Her first book just came out a few weeks ago. And was, she writes partly about Sanskrit and partly about Tantra and the body and the environment. And I, think, I was thinking, oh, my God, this is like consolation. Whilst poetry or art probably can't change, you know, like the Auden line, you know, it can't make it, poetry can't make anything happen, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, it can offer us a little consolation. Oh, you know, in our little corner we can cry together. And in a sense, I was reading that, some of those poems, it almost felt like sort of sobbing, mm. as it were. Mm. You know, we know people like Trump rule the world and, you know, the Russians, the Indians, whatever, and the Brazilians. <laughs> but this is like a little consolation. It's like there's, there's another poet talking to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so art offers that little uh, redress, I guess, for mm-hmm. us, you know, sort of... Mm-hmm. Recharging. Yeah, recharging, maybe. That's what Which it is. Yeah. 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 That's what it is. So it might not be activism, but it's mm-hmm. healing and mm-hmm. comfort, mm-hmm. consolation... Um, so that, that itself is really important, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. Do you want to read your poem first? <laughs> All right. Um, oh yeah. No, I mean things things do console you. Um, this, I, I mean, I'm not a poet uh, at all because it's tricky. Um, but uh, I, I vaguely knew Adrian Mitchell, and I did some demos with Adrian Mitchell, who famously wrote a poem called To Whom It May Concern, uh, which is remembered more as Tell Me Lies About Vietnam, and read it kind of famously. There's film online. You can see him read it in in the Royal Albert Hall um, very quietly. And I'd been to demos, and he had rewritten it for other occasions, the last time I saw him read, he'd rewritten it for uh, Tony Blair and the Iraq uh, adventure. Um, so I kind of thought if he was alive, you know, he, he would have, I mean, he'd be writing about climate change directly, but he also would have rewritten this because it's kind of a thing that he did. And as he isn't alive, um, I took it upon myself to read to... Uh, do a version of it, so apologies to Adrian, but he'd forgive me. So to whom it may concern, I was run over by the truth one day. Ever since the accident, I've walked this way. So wrap my face in plastic, tell me lies about climate change. Heard whole oceans screaming with pain, couldn't find myself, so I went back to sleep again. So fill my ears with money, wrap my face in plastic, tell me lies about climate change. Every time I shut my eyes, all I see is flames. Took my extinction notebook and crossed off this morning's names. So coat my eyes with cruelty, fill my ears with money, wrap my face in plastic, 
tell me lies about climate change. I smell something burning, hope it's just my brains. I'm counting climate refugees in dust and chains, so stuff my nose with drowning, coat my eyes with cruelty, fill my ears with money, wrap my face in plastic, tell me lies about climate change. Where were you when we called out your crime, shaking hands with oil men and wasting our time, so trump my facts with yelling, stuff my nose with drowning, coat my eyes with cruelty, fill my ears with money, wrap my face in plastic, tell me lies about climate change? And can you face your children, look into their eyes, say you think they're stupid and burn their skies? So fill my mouth with hating, trump my truth with yelling, stuff my nose with drowning, coat my eyes with cruelty, fill my ears with money, wrap my face in plastic, tell me lies about climate change. You put your missiles in, you put your conscience out, you take the human species and you twist it all about. You take the facts and figures and you twist them all about. You take good sense and kindness and you twist them all about. So scrub my skin with toxins, fill my mouth with hating, trump my truth with yelling, dig my grave for profit, stuff my nose with drowning, coat my eyes with cruelty, wrap my, fill my ears with money, Wrap my face in plastic. Tell me lies about climate change. Tell me lies about unlimited consumption. Tell me lies about climate change. Tell me lies about emissions. Tell me lies about climate change. Tell me lies about the future. Tell me lies about climate change. Tell me lies, Mr. Trump. Tell me lies, Mr. Bolsonaro. Tell me lies, Mr. Putin. Tell me lies, Mr. Prime Minister, I don't ever say his name out loud. <laughs> Tell me lies about climate change. All right, um, I'm going to read a difficult one. I've decided to read a difficult one to contrast with that. I don't know why. Um, just about people coming to Britain illegally. I'm very loath not to use the word migrant. Uh, I get frustrated when it's used on telly all the time, the news. You know, migrants coming over and you think of their grandparents, their children, um, they might be, uh, you know, kind Mr. of Portillo's asylum dad. seekers, economic migrants. Mr. Portillo's dad. <laughs> He's definitely a migrant. Um, but yeah, so just, um, so I imagine in this opening bit, they're coming in through ships, you know, so it's kind of almost kind of gestational image and then they kind of arrive. And I want to really use a whole mix of Englishes to, because the English language is, you know, kind of hybrid. Um, so it's called Look We Have Coming to Dover Stowed in the sea to invade the alfresco lash of a diesel breeze ratcheting speed into the tide Brunt with gobfuls of surf flemmed by cushy come-and-go tourists proud on the cruisers lauding the ministered waves Seagull and shoal life Vexing their blarneys upon our huddled camouflage past a vast crumble of scummed cliffs. Scramming on mulch as thunder and bladders, yobbish wind and rain on our escape, hutched in a Bedford van. Seasons or years we reap inland, unclocked by the national eye, all stabs in the back, teamed for breathing sweeps of grass through the whistling asthma of parks, 
burdened, ennobled, polling sparks across pylon and pylon. Swarms of us grafting in the black, within shot of the moon's spotlight, banking on the miracle of sun to span its rainbow, passport us to life. Only then can it be human to hoik ourselves, barefaced for the clear. Imagine my love and I, and our sundry others, blared in the cash of our beeswaxed cars, our crash clothes, free. We raise our charged glasses over unparasol tables, east, babbling our lingos, flecked by the chalk of Britannia. Thank you. All right. Um, we have about 30 minutes for questions. Um, you could just wait for the mic to get to you before you. Yes, right here. Um, I know we're not meant to be hopeless and cataclysmic, but um, you're all very sensible, sensitive, imaginative people. You're obviously writers. Uh, but we see that the voters of the world are voting for strong men, Modi or Trump or Johnson. Um, environmental legislation is being watered down, and the, popul you know, the, the populists are winning. So the call it the information battle that you are part of, is being lost. Um, and if anything, climate change deniers are getting stronger. Greta Thunberg is being criticized in more and more imaginative ways. Lefty liberals, PC, whatever, it's being sidelined. It's dividing society. And the strong men who are anti-Green Deal, anti-environmental action are winning. They're winning <laughs> elections in democracies and they're winning and taking power in places that are less democratic. So writing is not working. Social media is not working. Tweeting is not working. Um, isn't the battle being lost? And isn't um, the reaction in sort of climate denial, all the arguments they have, aren't they winning? That, that's not meant to be hopeless. That's yeah, meant I, to be. I, don't think, I don't think we're sitting here because it's a great situation. Because um, <laughs> if... If people in, the people in power were not largely insane, we wouldn't have, you know, we, we'd all be just working towards another end. Um, it's why we have to continue to do what we do and not despair. If the reaction to that is to despair, they win forever. Um, you know, I mean, they, they have a limited lifespan because they're insane and incredibly self-destructive. I mean, they'll do untold damage while they commit suicide and it's always them last um, but yeah it's a terrible situation that's that's why we're here trying to do what we do yeah and but, it is oh sorry go on yeah but, I mean their lives are not very good and you have to suffer an enormous amount of cognitive dissonance to continue to believe that everything is better when everything is slightly worse even though you elected a monster um, so you begin to be vulnerable more vulnerable to change, having got what you always wanted, and it's having not made you any happier. Um, so, yeah, it's awful, but we kind of know that. Um, the thing is to 
do something about it. And certainly not to sit at home and not, I mean, if you've never been on a demo, please go on a demo because it would be great to see you there, but also because it completely changes who you are. Um, doing any kind of action completely changes who you are. If you read Daniel Ellsberg, who obviously was particularly perfectly placed to change the whole way that America saw the Vietnam War, the thing that changed him, and he describes it in the Pentagon Papers, was being a guy in a suit who worked for the Rand Corporation who stepped off the sidewalk into the road and became a man in a demo. A very nervous, uncommitted man who didn't know what he was doing on the demo, but he stopped being who he'd been. He stopped having the same relationship with the street and with the police and with authority and with everything. It's, it's very hard how persuading somebody to do a tiny thing that's just very unusual for them um, changes things. But yeah, certainly it's, it's, uh, it's awful. Tell us about how awful it is in Mexico. <laughs> very awful. It's yeah. very awful in Mexico. But I think it is the, the daily question one asks oneself how to <clears throat> function and write and go about your life when you're not sure how much, when, well, without, without much hope. But I suppose, well, as, as Alison says, I think it is extremely important to just join as many actions as possible and to somehow channel that despair into some sort of act. Um, and um, I don't know, some days I have a tiny bit of hope for the U.S. election, but it depends on the day, of course, <laughs> or the hour, or the minute. But, um, I, and I do have hope if there's anything left in the future generations who are infinitely more environmentally aware and something like 12% of millennials are vegan in the Western world. I don't know. But, um, but it, yeah, things couldn't be worse at the moment, it's true. And um, one just has to just try to, just going to Extinction Rebellion groups and, and having this dialogue has helped enormously and being part of actions and brainstorming and thinking how one's very tiny way one can contribute. I mean, you know, veganism and vegetarianism is an interesting one because that was so fringe and peculiar until so recently, and now it's the, you know, the, the, the good bet for buying stocks in yeah. Miracle Burgers. I mean, that's been so fast. Yeah, just to... The markets have also started picking up on this, if it's any consolation, yeah. right? Because um, there is an increasing threat of, of basically systemic risk due to climate change. So I think your research looks at a bit of this, doesn't it? So you're probably better post to answer this. <laughs> I mean, well, go ahead, finish your... I mean, the, the, the crucial thing is whether it's buying stocks, whether it's um, basically investing in particular te technologies, um, or whether it's actually having the conversations, unless there's social proof that there is some norm change, it's difficult to actually have the norm change. So... Importantly, you need to have, um, I don't know, some sort of feedback that other people are also changing their behavior and other people care about this issue, mm -hmm. which is why I think things like protests and social movements or social media can make actually a bit of a difference um, in terms of actually giving people that hope, right, and that feedback, because if you individualize the problem, it becomes very daunting and depressing. Like, like the sardines, 
The sardines are very interesting in Italy because everybody's sitting at home thinking, oh, my God, Italy's screwed and it's screwed forever. And then the sardines decide, well, we're all going to go on the street and see who many pe- how many people turn up to say, well, actually, we're not part of that and we don't really like it. Um, and it's, it's been a very interesting um, movement. So, I mean, you know, there are, there are lots of people kind of doing... Yeah, there's, there's one paper which I've seen which looks at... So they look at secondary data, historical data, and they find that um, actually seeing people protest also is positively going to cause more people to protest. So it's, it, it can run in a causal direction. This was in the case of the Republican... Um, this was in case of the Tea Party from the state, so it's historical yeah. data. But, but actually looking at people, you know, coming out did help other people who, who thought this was an important issue to come out. But that said, this can still backfire and alienate people, so I'm not entirely fully optimistic, but, yeah. And it's all, yeah, I mean, it starts to succeed, and then you get stories being put around about terrible things happening that aren't happening, and then you have to reunite. It's always in flux, but I think... I don't know many hyper-wealthy people, but I do know some, and it would appear to be that as they go and see their GP every week, whether they need to or not, and they keep an eye on the stock market, they, you know, they keep an eye on everything, and it's all about them surviving. But I think a lot of them have worked out that it doesn't matter how much money they've got. I think for a while it was sustainable to think, if I'm a billionaire, I can live in my secure compound, in my mountain, with my private army, somehow I'll live. And I think the last couple of years the penny has dropped that there will be no money enough and Elon Musk hasn't got you to Mars quickly enough. He's just getting himself to Mars. And and they're stuck. And, and, you know, they're they're kind of a victim of their own success because a million pounds won't keep you for life now. It won't even buy you an apartment. Um, So there seems to be a change... In, in that little strata of, of people who are quietly influential. And the German social theorist describes this as, uh, Ulrich Beck describes this as enforced cosmopolitanism, this idea that climate change kind of brings together people who would otherwise want nothing to do with each other. Um, so I think, you know, and, and there, there are kind of uh, criticisms of that idea, but I think one of the things that's really generative about thinking in those terms is related to this question about the potential for surprising new solidarities. Um, that, you know, the experience of living in a floodplain um, can unite people across region, across class, across political party. Um, that there's this kind of shared exposure to risk um, that, can, that can generate a, a different set of kind of vocabularies around the, the future um, and what security means. Um, but there's always this question of kind of who the winners and losers are whenever we start talking about and, visions well, of the future. Well, and the big losers, of course, so far of uh, other species and right. 200 species going extinct today. And yeah, I don't have children either, but for me, um, the huge, mm-hmm. the collapse of biodiversity, mm-hmm. bees, insect, all sorts of insects, polar bears, wildlife, is just, uh, it's, that's what keeps me awake at night. More than, you know, our species, we brought it upon ourselves. And I, I actually have less sympathy, for, even though, of course, I know communities have, have contributed at all are going to suffer first. And, you know, uh, but um, so one of my, my, uh, uh, my involvement has had a lot to do with um, wanting to um, 
stand up for the voiceless and who are departing in this long, silent mm -hmm. caravan. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's what I like a lot about XR also is that they bring, they mention diversity, well, the loss of biodiversity um, in most of their communications. And, you know, because it's just this obsession with the survival of our species. But what about what we've inflicted on all the others <laughs> about the animals? Mm -hmm. And that's why animal rebellion has also been an important um, for those of you who, uh, I'm sure everyone, I hope, is aware of Animal Rebellion. I think they were born in the autumn with the last uprising, but, and they are advocating this transition to a plant-based diet because, of course, agriculture is one of the main um, uh, causes of climate change. And so it's not necessarily because of concern for animals and what we've put them through over the centuries, but at least if that's going to help them, um, then uh, let's also... I mean, turning, becoming vegan or at least vegetarian today would, is something we can all do immediately. So. Mm. Let's uh, take another question from the floor. Um, how about right here, next to you? There you go. Hi. It's nice to hear that poets can make a difference. Being a poet, that's, that's good to hear. Um, just comment, sort of part comment about humour. I think humour can be really important, and often with really black things, I think we really underestimate how important humour could be. And the other one is about sort of positive visions. So, um, you know, I think there's a lot of unhappiness that comes from lack of connection with nature. Um, and I think that, that a lot more can be done with more positive, more creative visions of, of um, yeah, where we could be in the alternative futures that are actually better than where we are now. And this is an opportunity. And maybe that's another sort of uh, approach. So there's just a few comments that you might respond to. Thanks. Actually, connections with nature, there's a literature which does show that people who spend time outside, um, especially in green and blue spaces, tend to report higher levels of subjective well-being. Mm -hmm. A lot of this is um, data like app data where you buzz someone and they report and things. And um, it's, it's, it's much higher than people living in built nature unless you live near an urban park. Mm. Um, then it's quite high as well. So I think definitely you were talking about your experience about living in the countryside. So there's some data which also shows that when you've been connected to nature through either education outdoors or actually trips outdoors and things like that, you tend to have um, express higher care, concern, attitudes, as well as potentially helping behaviors to, the na to nature in the, in the future as well. And just, just the benefits of uh, tree, tree bathing. Uh, Japan has this thing where they... I can't remember the word for it, but they specifically have a walking through trees thing, and that, that seems to be particularly um, beneficial. But, you know, Britain is a, is a land of gardeners. I mean, you know, maybe weird, anal, retentive, ridiculous, clip lawn gardeners, <laughs> but the amount of time and energy that people put into their gardens, and again, it's, it's one of these little leverage points of have you noticed that your garden is kind of dying because the last two summers have been ridiculous? Um, have you noticed that you don't have the... Ins have you noticed you can read at night with the light on? and your windows open, which when I was a child you couldn't, you'd get bitten to death and covered in moths. Why is it that nothing comes in anymore? Because you've got so, so far fewer insects. But you know, it's, it's just kind of, do you like your garden? Do you like your window box? Why do you bother having a window box if it, if it doesn't matter? 
yes, back, oh, right here, sorry. Um, Antonio Guterres thinks that we maybe have one year to avert going past 1.5 degrees of global warming. We're heading for towards three or four at the moment. Um, a lot of the things that you're talking about are quite kind of polite and speculative and maybe this messaging works and maybe it doesn't. But isn't Greta right? Our house is on fire. What are the stories that you tell when your house is on fire? Our planet is dying. The seas are full of our plastic uh, animals. So I hear what you say about catastrophism, but because activists have been too scared to tell that story for so long, no, nobody has taken on board that that is a potential. And the only way to avoid the catastrophe is to see where we might be going and to take some action. Right now, our politicians aren't doing it. Uh, people are. We've changed, we have changed things. I, th I think you're wrong. But we've only changed the argument. We haven't changed the politics. We haven't changed the basis of power. Um, as you were saying, it's very hard to write the right sort of novel within the present sort of bourgeois setup. It's very hard to tell the story of what is going on with the climate within capitalism and colonialism as it is set up. How do we tell the stories as writers today which is going to wake people's imaginations up and make them want to do stuff? Because, you know, maybe seeing people on the streets being activists maybe makes them more likely to do it. That's, it's, it's like we're being invaded by Martians. We don't sit down and write a program, you know, write a thesis about how you might deal with Martians. It's an alien flipping invasion. Let's do something. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I, mean, I mean, you know, we've been asked to talk about writers doing things with words. I, I think undoubtedly direct action is, is necessary, will continue to be necessary, will escalate, will be made illegal, will continue anyway because nobody is going to listen to anything other than things that are very um, forceful. And, and as you say, we have a year, 18 months. Um, so there isn't really time to wait for a, for a mass movement. And there are lots of people who are involved with activism, but it, it's, it's going to have to be beyond school kids every Friday, um, you know, BP is interesting because they've had peaceful protests, but endless peaceful protests. At the moment, you know, they've suddenly committed to something that's almost undoubtedly a lie because they're simultaneously trying to take God knows how many barrels of oil out of the uh, ground again. Um, but it's interesting how, how quickly they've wobbled. I think they blinked. Um, and if it keeps being impossible to whitewash your company via advertising and if people are on it, on it, on it. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're in trouble. I mean, we're, we're aiming to, to make the hell not as hellish now. Um, but we, you know, the overwhelmingness of the awfulness can't stop us from trying to make the hell less hell. But it's, it's going to be direct action, and part of our role is going to be saying, no, they're not all 
hemp-smelling crusties, they're trying to save you, allow us to explain what these people are doing, allow us to be on Twitter to explain what these people are doing, allow us to say that they do let ambulances through and they do let emergency vehicles through because that battle of narratives is, is really important. In the, also, the question is, what do you want to achieve, right? So if you're trying to talk to people who disagree with you, maybe the catastrophe narrative is not going to work. At least that's what we find, mm. right? So it could be that you adapt your storytelling to your audience because certain stories will resonate more with certain people, right? So then it's a question of who you're talking to and how you're able to cater to whatever prior beliefs they had or anxieties they had about it, right? So, I mean, yes, you have to communicate the catastrophe, but one way to do that without inducing potentially despair in the audience who you already agree with is potentially by giving them constructive steps or solutions. That's something which people often say is, is a good way to deflect from the catastrophe and harness the hope. And another way to do it is amongst people who frankly don't care about what you have to say or who have prior ideological difference and that predisposes them to disagree with you because of something else apart from the content. Maybe it's a question of changing the story, and I think that's where we don't really have a good grip on what works with who. Um, and that's where I think we need more research as well. I think just, I mean, I, I don't think poetry, something like poetry can speak to that sort of level of alarm. Uh, it just, it doesn't work that way. It works on slower time. I think what poetry or art forms generally do is help people um, think imaginatively, think freely, connect with... Uh, an exuberance uh, in a state of being. I think of something like um, East Berlin, you know, poets being translated like Shakespeare, Keats, Dylan Thomas, and people on the ground were saying that, that, you know, the ability to think freely was really liberating, and that was one of the many factors that contributed to an insurgency. So, you know, I think the arts can do these things, especially in repressive uh, countries and repressive states. Arts do help you to think freely, remind you, um, that you don't have to be shut down. You just sometimes see a painting or hear a couple of lines of poem and suddenly your head's blown off and you think, oh, I can be human again. So I think it has other impacts. It's sort of that soft power is really I think it comes hopeful. down. I think it comes down to that left philosopher, no, not left philosopher, uh, Vastav Havel thing, the power of the powerless. He, he acted as, as if the authoritarian state had gone and he was already living in a new country to the point where he ended up living in a new country. Um, you guys on the street are already acting as if you were in a country where enough people cared for change to happen. And I, I, I think it's a really fundamental force if, if you're not in authority and you don't have the levers of power um, to comport yourself as if you were already in a different place. And it allows you not to go insane and not to blow up or burn out while you're trying to fix something appallingly urgent. Okay, yes. Um, I, I read somewhere years ago that to bring any positive change in the world, whether it's solving climate change or getting rid of homophobia or anything, anything, you need three types of people. You need a lawyer who knows the legal system and the politics and can use that language you need an activist who has the anger and the passion and the drive and can, can enthuse people. And you need a writer, whether that's a poet or a novelist or a filmmaker or a 
playwright or any type of writer who can articulate the words and reach the masses. And perhaps after today, maybe an academic as well, maybe a child, we can add to that mix. Do you think that the writers, the lawyers, and the activists are actually talking to each other, or are they acting in, in singular fashion? And that could... The, the, the lady who asked the question, I, I, I agree with you, yes, but I also disagree with you, because I think that the writers can have that empowerment if they are talking to the activists and the lawyers. Is that happening at all? Uh, yeah, I, it's slow, but yeah. I mean, I, I, I remember sitting at a, a CND at the last Hiroshima Memorial uh, sort of marking and lots of CND people saying, well, why aren't XR talking to us? Because we've been trying to save the planet forever and, and obviously every, at every step nuclear power is, is ecologically appalling. Um, why aren't we talking to each other? And I kind of went, well, I, I know, I can phone them. And it's not like they're in hiding. Um, but as it turned out, there were, you know, different parts were already um, in touch. Um, so sometimes it's just that, that individuals in a kind of cell system don't know the points of contact. But I, I was, I, it was interesting to be in Trafalgar Square and see sort of my entire past life in activism, and I'm a very minor activist, they were all there, which made me very happy. But yeah, m more of that. Um, you know, the, 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 the Mohican people and the Sioux people and the, the indigenous people from, from, from Amazonia. Um, there's, there's the links, you, you get these sort of n nodes of collaboration and then they fade and disperse partly because activists are going to different places. But then around the Dakota Access Pipeline, it was interesting how many people came from how many different places and how many different types of support were brought together. But we, we just we need that model all the time, always. Um, Yes, exactly. What uh, just a few days ago, when I was speaking to my parents about this panel, they said that they concluded after 35 years of activism that um, addressing these issues in, through art wasn't enough. That you had to bring an, an element of activism mm -hmm. out on the street and engaging other communities. And and they said with legal advice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, we have time for one more question. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> Thank you. Um, we've heard all about the climate denial and the stupidity and all the sort of hoo-ha about this terrible crisis that faces us. And I think this is fairly typical of most crises, really. But it strikes me that you're a bit like all those people trying to put Humpty together again. Because to me, there's just really two major variables in all this there's resources and there's population, and they don't balance anymore. And whatever we do and try to fix up things around the edges and appeal to people's better nature as individuals, it's going to be very difficult to balance those two in future. And I personally think we're doomed, really, because of that imbalance, because it's gone so far out of hand. Thank you. On the upside, lots of people are going to start dying quite soon, so, <laughs> hey, um, 
you have to find your fun where you can. Uh, yeah, I mean, sort of mass extinction events for humans are already happening. Um, so we, we probably won't be the last species to still be here, I would imagine. Uh, but by that point, we'll have been too much of a burden. But yeah, there need to be less of us, for sure. This is interesting because this is also balanced against like graying populations um, debates in most of the world, um, in Europe and in the UK, for instance. So, uh, I mean, it's a question of how you, I guess, address those simultaneously from a policy perspective as well as like a behavioral perspective. If there's 60 viable crop seasons left in the UK, then what? If unless we transition to more sustainable farming, perhaps. Right, I mean, I think the question of resources is one of how we metabolize resources, how we use resources. Yeah. Um, well, that's where animal agriculture comes in enormously. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we might actually have time for one more question. Yes, right here in the middle. Um, hello. As Extinction Rebellion is so much about disruption and about... Um, moving away from business as usual. I'm just wondering how Writers Rebel fits into that, because having a, a sort of event where you read your poetry or whatever is great, but is not in itself disruptive, perhaps. So I don't know if there's any plans for anything of that sort. I don't, know. I, don't, I don't think we're allowed to sort of tell you. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, largely it wouldn't be this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what? I mean, that's been what we've been discussing is how to get the message much more out there and not just have readings. Um, I think um, we've also thought about uh, everything from some sort of tiny mobile library that goes through the country and where there's books that address the crisis um, and leave them in community have like a parked vehicle that or uh, that stationed in different villages or communities that maybe not doesn't have like a little eco library that travels around the country um, and um, and I think with within writers rebel the, the the main thing we just ask is um, of writers is not every single writer is now going to write a, a novel about the climate crisis. But um, what we do ask, if one cares, is to just whatever, whatever platform you have to address it and to just keep repeating that message until the government and corporations and those who can actually do something react. So what we can just do is just keep repeating this message as many times as possible. And you know, as a writer, one feels under pressure usually to come up with original ideas or expressions or phrases. But in this case, one can just repeat the same thing over and over again. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, and in terms of direct action, well, some say that the act of writing is, is direct action, but of course, you know, if you actually want to put your physical bodies out there in some way, then, but I don't know if a disruptive reading in a bookshop or in, in um, the lobby of HSBC, mm. it depends, but we've actually thought about maybe having certain writers like you go in and, and speak at lunchtime to people at banks or, I don't know, places where you could actually maybe just plant a seed. Yeah, and I mean, you know, people do attend writing festivals. And I was at um, Essex, the Essex Book Festival, which is quite 
um, activisty anyway and pro-multicultural and pro-internationalism. I mean, they approached Writers Rebel to say, could you do an event, which means you, you know, there's also the let's be in a room with people who may, might not have thought about this and just be around or be a paragraph in a program that people read. Because um, you've got to hit people all the... <laughs> not hit people. You have to do word of mouth all the time because you, you don't, you're not the dominant discourse so you, you have to always say something of, you know I, I don't know how many events I do in a year it's just always going to be a part of every event mm. it's always going to be a part of every point where your voice is loud um, you know we, we didn't have to storm the stage and occupy it because we got given it mm. so we don't have to be you know arsy about it um, but sometimes you would have to be a bit you know if, if this wasn't our stage but tonight we got given the stage which is fine you said thank you very much we'll have the stage thank you uh, please t tell three other people about this event <laughs> during the course of next week please go on a demonstration please go online and look at all of the causes you can give money to or all of the actions that you can take just sitting in your living room. Uh, get every ounce of plastic out of your house. Get a bamboo toothbrush. You know, there's so many things that you can do uh, if you're feeling despairing. I think with that call to action, it's um, probably a good place to end. If you'd like to continue your conversations with our panelists, um, again, right outside of the theater, they'll be signing books. If you didn't bring your own copies, there'll be books for sale. Uh, I think I speak for everyone when I say it's been a real pleasure to have you all here tonight to share with us. And please join me in thanking our panel.